everyone. David Williams here, your host of the Treat Us Right podcast. Welcome to this month's episode. This is another special episode, and it's entitled Erase Racial Bias in Healthcare. That title is important because even though racial bias, health disparities, health equity, healthcare equality are abstract to the mind, their need for resolution is acute for people of color. So recently, I held a webinar which delved deep into identifying racial bias in healthcare and what you can do as an individual to make sure that you can erase that racial bias in your healthcare. That's what this is about, so check it out. Thank you all for coming to Erase Racial Bias in Personal and Family Healthcare, the Black and Brown Guide to Achieving Healthcare Equality. As you know, uh, health equity, healthcare equality, these are two things that are uh, top of mind uh, in the United States and, and really around the world. And it's something that's actually able to be fixed. And we're going to talk about that. I don't know if any of you have seen this study, but Sandeel Mullenathan is a uh, professor of computational behavioral science at the University of Chicago uh, in the Booth Business School, along with Berkeley, basically did a study that looked at care algorithms in a lot of the clinical decision support systems. This is the quote. We found that a category of algorithms that influences healthcare decisions for over 100 million Americans shows significant racial bias. That alone should shock everyone. This is something that is in the care algorithms of the systems that are treating the most sick and vulnerable. So here's the fact, health disparities exist. People of color do not receive equal care. And you have to understand why. And what you want to do is get in front of where these decisions about care are being made. And it's by doctors and all the different interaction points throughout our healthcare system. And they make decisions on four factors. One, medical evidence. What is the published peer-reviewed medical evidence? Then they use their clinical experience. How much experience do they have treating the types of people who are like you or like your loved one? Experience they can draw from. They also look at your insurance situation, your money situation. For better and for worse, they do because they, if I am charitable, it is that they're trying to figure out the best way to maximize your ability to get good care with what your economic needs are. And then lastly, what your reported experience is. What are you feeling? What have you experienced over time? So they can use all of these factors to get a more customized treatment plan together for you or for your loved one. Those are the four factors. The problem is bias. There is systemic unconscious and conscious bias in three of the four factors. So what's our opportunity here? Our opportunity is healthcare equality. Healthcare equality is a subset of health equity. Health equity is kind of the umbrella term you hear when you're really looking at can people of all ethnicities, regardless of socioeconomic status, receive the same access to care, the same access to food, the same access to housing, the same access essentially to the items that will allow for health to be more equitably distributed. That's what health equity is. Healthcare equality, on the other hand, is a subset that says when I am interacting with the healthcare system, I am getting the same quality care 
as white folks, frankly. But it's basically, regardless of what my race is, I'm getting the best care possible for me. Okay? And the statistics show that does not happen. So that's what healthcare equality is. So why am I even even to talk about this? Who is, who, who, who is this guy, David S. Williams III? I've helped more than 2 million people use their data to get better healthcare. I've helped companies like Pfizer and Novartis, Lilly, Aetna, really healthcare brand name companies that you've heard of become more consumer focused, okay? I'm also a published author in two peer-reviewed journals, healthcare-related journals. I'm also Ivy League educated with an MBA in digital strategy, so I really do focus on information. You'll see that. And my work has been recognized by the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Wired, Fast Company, and others. This is something I'm really passionate about in general, which is essentially the ability for everyone to use their information for better care. But I think the focus really needs to be on people of color now. And that's what we're talking about. So most of all, though, I'm kind of like everybody else. I'm like you. Um, this is my mother, my uh, son, and my sister, um, who recently uh, recently passed away, unfortunately. It's really difficult still to deal with that. But if you look at the things that they've done in their healthcare endeavors, in their journeys, and what I've been witness to and participated in, the results have been astounding. And every time the goals to live, my mother, Karen Ann Williams, lived for 27 more years after doctors told her she had six months to live with terminal liver cancer. 27 more years, not six months. My sister, who was diagnosed with a rare blood disorder, was given less than five years to live. She lived 10. 10 years. Okay. My son, who has severe autism and seizures, has lowered the severity of his autism by 50% over time. And we've extended the time between his seizures from what had become days now to months. And the question really becomes, what did they do? How did they do this? They're all, we're all people of color. I'm giving my personal examples. What did they do? What did we all do to, a challenge, uh, to establish these kinds of results? And the answer is we erased bias from treatment decision-making. That's what we did. But you have to know how to do that. And that's the trick. That trick is personal data. The power is actually inside of you. Okay? Your personal data can be used to overcome the bias inherent in the healthcare system. By documenting your health and care experiences, you provide the data that does not exist in the healthcare system, but is highly predictive of outcomes. And also leverageable to bring the healthcare system to you before you have a bad outcome, before you're in the emergency room, before you're hospitalized. That's the secret. Data overcomes bias. So wait, Let's talk about the things that people will tell you and I hear all the time. First one is my doctor has my data. They have my, 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 in their EMR, they have all my data. This is a myth. 
What they have is data on your interactions with them or with the healthcare system. Furthermore, you may have more than one doctor and their information on you may be fragmented across systems that don't talk to each other. There's one common denominator in your care and your ability to get care, and that's you. So you have to be able to take your data and share it. The other thing is, not, not each doctor to doctor, you know how long that takes. The other reason why it's a myth is because what's happening at home, they never see. If you're a senior, you don't fall in the doctor's office. You don't fall in the day center. You're falling at home. So all of your experiences that led to that fall can be changed, transformed into data that would allow for interventions to occur prior to that fall. That's all data. That's your health and care experience. And right now, it doesn't exist in the healthcare system. Right? So that's a myth. The other thing I hear, my doctor isn't biased. That is also a myth. Your doctor's human, first of all. The statistics will tell you that there's certainly bias across the board. But your doctor does try to being charitable, overcome that bias by asking you all these different questions, um, using their, you know, their medical degrees, their, you know, knowledge of the medical literature, uh, as well as your personal experience. So your doctor's biased because they're human. The goal, though, is to actually make them more biased towards you. That's a little bit of giving away the farm early on. The last thing I hear is how much time does this take to kind of capture my personal health and care information? Not as much as you think. In fact, it's really fast. And there are ways to accelerate even that time. So let's refocus. Let's remember the problem. The problem's bias, systemic, unconscious, and conscious bias. And where do these biases exist? First one is in the medical evidence, okay? that first factor where decisions may, are being made by your clinicians. If you look at the distribution of or participation of African-Americans, just looking at African-Americans, this actually does transform and, and transfer to other uh, groups of color. If you look at cardiovascular disease, oncology, and psychiatry, cardiovascular disease and oncology, you're looking at 2% participation rates among African-Americans. Okay, So if I'm black and I go to the doctor and they're thinking about medical evidence, that may or may not be applicable to me. It's less likely to be applicable to me in those disease areas. So the point is that it can't be, it's not enough. Now it's great to have it, medical evidence, you get what you can get for sure. But the whole point of having evidence is to make it applicable by looking at scaled groups so that you can make a good decision for the end of one, but it has to be relevant. At least in psychiatry, there's more of a prevalence of African-Americans in trials, that's good. It's still not great, right? That causes systemic bias, okay? That entire factor is systemic because you're not getting enough participation among African-Americans. And if you actually go into the depth about why, it's very clear black folks don't trust the healthcare system. They don't want to participate in clinical trials because we've been experimented on without our consent previously. And that's gonna be hard to overcome but it does cause a problem in medical evidence. Clinical experience bias, this is where we get into the algorithm. So that's the quote that I started with. 
This study essentially showed what health disparities are by looking at how the decisions are made to enroll people into high-intensity disease management programs. Okay? Essentially, what the algorithms were doing were basing their risk score based on how much dollars were spent on care delivered. And so once you reached a certain dollar threshold, you then qualify for the more intense care management program. The problem is, is that if you have less access to care or you go to the doctor fewer times because you have some kind of cultural distrust of the healthcare system, then your ability to reach the dollars spent threshold does not come until you're sicker because you're not spending dollars on the healthcare system. And that's what this chart shows. This chart shows essentially that if I'm looking at the level of sickness, this is like a level of co-occurring conditions here at the bottom, and then the dollar expenditures going here on the y-axis. If I'm looking at this number here, which is let's say it's $4,000 at this point, and I'm white on this yellow line, by the time I, if I'm a black person, spend $4,000, I'm already this sick. Look how much sicker I am. So the decision-making points in the clinical decision support systems algorithms are biased because they're biased on something that says, I'm not looking at your level of acuity of sickness. I'm looking at the dollar spent at the proxy and that is a biased proxy. So this can also cause health disparities. Among healthcare decision makers, that's unconscious. They may or may not know that. It's likely they don't. They're just using what the system tells them to do because it is based on the scaled population. The problem is that the proxy is wrong. It's racially biased. Okay. So again, the clinical experience bias is based on algorithms that do not express the true acuity of care as a decision-making factor on whether or not you actually get a certain level of care or intensity of care, it's based on dollars spent. And that has a huge impact on who receives care. That causes unconscious bias. And then there's socioeconomic bias. Do you have the best insurance? Does your insurance impact your treatments? Does your doctor think you have less money and treat you accordingly? That's conscious bias. Um, last year, the AMA uh, journal editor had to resign because he made this big statement about how there was no bias in among doctors. So there was no bias in healthcare. Had to resign because I was like, are you, what are you, are you kidding? Because everything said that. All the data says that. So this is real too. Very conscious bias on socioeconomic uh, basis. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later because there's a cascading effect of all of these that then is reflected in racial and socioeconomic bias. So here's the question. What's the ratio of each factor in clinical decision-making? Now, if I'm an N of one, I'm a doctor, and I, let's say that I'm equally weighing the data in front of me, okay? Let's just say we did that. Now, that may or may not be true in the real world, but let's just say we did, okay? That means I am considering that medical evidence, okay? I have clinical experience that I think is relevant, and I am being conscious of the money in the insurance situation, and the patient has given me some, some data, okay? Three out of four of those, remember, 
have bias. Okay? Let's talk about you. Your data has your bias. Okay? Not theirs. But the difference is you know how you can feel, how you feel, and can describe it. You can document your metrics that you're having while you're outside of the system. Okay? You're not at the doctor's office. You can take your own blood pressure or you can take your own um, heart rate. You can do these things today, and they're very easy to do. And you own your data. So you have the ability to share it as is needed. So the trick is, when you're capturing this information, there are ways to show your doctor how you feel that lends credibility and will give you more respect from that physician so that they weigh your personal experience more. Okay? You want the decisions that physicians make and other providers based on your experience, your personal experience with these conditions, with these set of conditions, with previous medications, you want them to take that information as the most influential. And there are ways you can show them that. So talk about what is your data. When I say your data, the power is within you. What is your data? Well, it's the power to document health and care experiences. That's your data. It's to structure the data of what your experiences are outside of the healthcare system. And there are three care categories, okay? One is your actual experience. These are the clinical experiences that you're getting. What are your symptoms? What events have you had? What are your measures, right? Your heart rate, your blood pressure, your A1C, whatever those things are that are uh, biological markers that you can then use as metrics. Those are your measures. Your events are things that may happen that may be adverse events. They may be side effects. They may be things that are um, you know, like a seizure or a fall, things that are events that occur um, but are not necessarily tied to some kind of condition itself. You want to be able to capture those. Those may be important. And obviously, your symptoms are tied to your condition. Then there are interactions. You want to document the interactions you have with the healthcare system. One, you might be seeing multiple doctors, PCP, specialist, oncologist, psychiatrist, um, gynecologist, all the different groups, and they end up wanting to know what's happened, what these other doctors have said, and they don't talk to each other. So it's actually easier for you to be the distributor of your personal information than it is for the healthcare system to do so. So you want to document those things in whichever ways you can. Record it, take notes, whatever you do want to do, okay? The last one is activities. What's happening at home? The tasks, your medication adherence, are you taking the medication? Um, your activities of daily living, those that are clinically relevant, it's not everything. Like, I don't need to know that, you know, you've been grooming yourself unless you have schizophrenia and grooming yourself is actually something that's really important in terms of your overall prognosis, so there are things that are clinically relevant among ADLs. The point is to capture not only the medical determinants of health, but also the social determinants of health. To figure out what your housing situation is, what's going on at home, what's going on in terms of um, your access to food, diet, all of those things. That's your activities. That's your third area. Whatever's clinically relevant, but may or may not be medical. Okay? If you have all three of those care categories documented, the ones that are most important, you are going to have the richest set of data on your experience like you've never had, okay? 
So how can you take your data? All the old school posts my mom did too, get paper binders. You know, you just basically take a binder, you have all the information in there, you keep it up to date, and you do that. Obviously, you can use spreadsheets, you know, maybe Microsoft Word, something that allows you to digitize your experience. Then there are apps that allow you to do this, and there aren't many, and Care3 is one of them, um, that allows you to take all of this information and have it ready for you, and then creates metadata from that that you can use, okay? Obviously, I'm biased. I think everybody should be using apps for this. But at worst, you should be digitizing your data, okay? Taking it however it works. My wife, for example, she's still in the paper. And it's great. She's organized with it. I digitize everything. I make sure it's in that. We can pull it up anytime and anywhere, and we do. Because you can't carry a binder everywhere, okay? So what's the truth? Why do you do this? Your data is your advocacy. Remember we talked about this before. This is one of the things that I've learned so much from my mother and my sister about this, but the idea of just advocating for yourself is something that black people and brown people need to do in the healthcare system. But the way to do it is through data. Go in there and speak the language that these healthcare practitioners speak. It will gain you respect, but it'll also give them information that they would have never expected, but will use. For you, they will. However, you have to be able to change their equation to go from this, kind of everything being equal, to this. You want to skew the decision-making of your healthcare providers to be based on your experience and the way you can, quote-unquote, compete with the other sources of information that they use in clinical decision-making is to make your experiences into data as well. To translate your experiences into real-world information that can be used on your behalf. The power is inside of you. Because they want to hear. There are two questions a doctor asks you up front in any visit. One, how are you feeling? And two, what's happened since the last time we interacted? Those are the two questions. You have to be able to answer that second question with data. You can answer the first one in the moment. How are you feeling right now? I'm feeling okay. Actually, this tie is a little tight. I'm kind of a little, you need to do like that. You can answer that in the moment. But being able to answer what's happened over time has to be communicated in a way that will give it credibility. It will also release the nervousness, the tension of trying to remember everything in the moment. Whether it's for you or for a loved one. You don't want to have to recall everything because you're going to forget. And then when you do, it might be something important that you forgot because it happened two months ago. But if a doctor knew that, that would make a big impact on their decision making. So you want to capture all of this stuff in real time or near real time, and then be able to share that information when you're interacting with the healthcare system, okay? That is what erases the bias, moves the bias towards your personal experience and away from the systemic unconscious and conscious bias, all right? So that's the secret. Remember that data overcomes bias. The relevant data on your experiences leads to unbiased care and better health. Nobody is saying that 
physicians should not use medical evidence, should not use their clinical experience, or should not even take into consideration your financial considerations, okay? Nobody's saying they shouldn't. What it shouldn't do is not consider your experience because that's how you can recognize bias. If your doctor does not take your data into consideration, then you fire that doctor, period. If you walk in there or do a telehealth session where you have laid out a month, two months, three months of your experiences in a way that they can look at it and see what your experience is, you have to fire that doctor. A stupid example is this, okay? I go to a new doctor or I have a new kind of concern that I go to my old doctor with. But either way, the doctor wants to prescribe me a new medication, okay? But I've taken that medication before and I'm allergic, okay? Had an adverse reaction, okay? If you do not have any record of it, don't remember of it, or don't have a way to communicate it, to advocate for yourself, you will take that medication again. And because the doctor is the hero, you will then have a negative reaction again, which costs you money, time, and health. You have to advocate for yourself, okay? The best way to do it is to have data. If a doctor would still, given that information prescribed for you, a medication that they know that you had an adverse reaction to, then you fire that doctor. Because then they're not taking your personal experience into consideration. That's the most acute type of example we can get. But it happens. It does. We have to stop that. So I talked before, before I show you this busy screen, I talked before about the socioeconomic bias that can occur, right? The financial considerations. But there is a cascading effect. So I put together a table that looked at from a family's perspective, when you have a caregiver, what kind of expenses out of pocket are incurred? So if I'm caring for my mom, okay, and I am in the family caregiver role, I have on average, you know, in 2012, I had data from 2012, about $5,500. In 2021, according to AARP, it's almost $7,000 out of pocket annually that I will spend on average, okay? And you can break it down into all these different categories. But if you look at across ethnicity, you start seeing a different picture than the average. Now, white becomes the average. Even African-American in aggregate is not that far off, but Hispanic, Latino, much higher, and Asian much lower than the average. And you're like, what is it? So I put in yellow some of these things that were eye-popping to me, okay, when I did this analysis. When you look at the amount of dollars spent on medical, remember, we're talking about the ability to show that you are using medical costs. Remember that algorithm we talked about? The more dollars that you are getting able to spend on you in, in, in healthcare will then allow you to get better care. Look at the difference between white and blacks or white and Hispanic Latinos, okay? This is the expression, again, of that exact same clinical algorithm driving poor healthcare access and care delivery among people of color. It's right there. It's another way of looking at the exact same thing, just how much dollars are being spent. Now, let's look at other things like here. Look at the travel costs for African-Americans and, and Latinos, okay, versus whites. That's because people are going to see their families. There are cultural things to that. They're going more, 
But here's what's super interesting. Look at um, a lot of these home costs among Latinos. Home modifications or rent versus what you'll see among blacks and whites. It's much, much more. Why? Because a lot of times they're either living with people and then doing all of these things. So they have them resident in the home. Okay. Look at the food meals difference. I mean, that is monstrous. Okay. It's because they're living with, you know, they're multi-generational households and living together. Or they're going in and making sure that the homes that their, their aging parents are in are, are fitted for the problems that they're having. These are amazing numbers. Look at the amount of respite, caregiving services difference. Okay? It's huge. Okay? So what, what I wanted to show and kind of get to the bottom, and this is where the bottom line is, if you look at percent of income that goes towards these expenses, Blacks and Latinos are just an enormous amount of their disposable income, of overall income. Okay, of your, if you look at 34% of your overall ability to make expenditures is going towards this, you are already in an economic problem situation, and now it's exacerbated. What do you do? If your household income and your disposable income are such that you have to spend a third of those dollars on family caregiving, I've done this. I know this is true. You can spend more than that easily, especially if you're in a sandwich situation like I was. Those are astounding differences. This is the cascading effect of socioeconomic bias. Okay. If you don't get in front of the treatment decisions that are made so that you get better care, the cascading effect is that over time, care gets worse and the expenditures that you have to make out of pocket go up. So this is another expression of bias and it is systemic. Right? Here's where it gets ugly. On average, almost one in four Family caregivers have to leave their job. Okay? So now, not only do you have to spend that $6,000, but you're now losing your $40,000, $60,000 a year job, if you're lucky in this country to have those numbers. One in four. Quit. That's not just reducing work hours. That's actually part of the 77%. That's another, you know, uh, 12% will actually reduce their work hours. It is just brutal if you have a 23%, one in four people are going to have to quit and still incur those costs. How do people do it? Well, you know what? That causes debt. Do you see how this if you don't get in front of this bias when care is being delivered, this can cause generational, generational economic deficits. And it's all based on the bias in the healthcare system. We have to get in front of this. Right? So what I am doing, because I am taking a very personal um, I'm taking this actually as a, a personal vendetta, if you will. Um, I'm actually going to be offering an online course. I already do with my app, Care3. 
last week actually said, oh, just go download the app. We have all these things for you. But actually, when I'm the app is actually best used if you really get ahead of how to use it, how to capture that information, and how to deploy it quickly. And so in that vein, I'm offering an online course, a 30-day intense course for people of color in challenging healthcare information, uh, healthcare situations. Essentially, we will teach you how to unleash that data, unleash the power inside. Use that information to get better care, unbiased care. Get other people to help, because that's another issue, is like, how much help can I get from my family or friends? But then also, continue that career advancement. Make it so you don't have to quit your job. Because if you can do those things that still allow you to remain employed, then you can take on the individual economic strife that you're put into longer than if you actually quit your job and are really put into a hole. So this online course, again, it's 30 days intense, but you also get another year, another year of our consulting on a quarterly basis. And obviously, we have customer service that's tied to our, you know, tied to the company and our ability to interact on an as-needed basis. Um, that will start in September. And I encourage anybody, uh, if you have any questions about that, contact me, david at care3.co. I'm more than happy to talk about it. If you know somebody who might benefit from that kind of program, please give them my contact information. Okay? This online course is just phenomenal. I will be part of the coaching. My team will be part of the coaching. We have a platform that allows for everybody to capture this information digitally and then distribute it in a HIPAA compliant way where everybody owns their information. But our goals are to unleash that inner power of data and get ahead of the bias in healthcare. Thank you. So that's my presentation. I am um, open to any questions, thoughts, uh, any other types of, of um, you know, feedback you'd like to give. Please drop it in the chat. I'm happy to, to answer any questions. Um, I, I appreciate you all coming. Okay, no one? Okay, that's great. If you're still typing, I'll give a couple minutes. Don't worry. Um, oh, I see, Deborah, you have a thought here. Uh, let's see. What is your suggestion to get more people of color into clinical trials? That is a great question I get a lot. Um, it's very interesting. My father's wife literally has a business doing this on a, as a consulting business um, in Louisiana. And Part of it is work with community health centers. Federally qualified health, um, health centers are an absolute treasure trove, essentially, of people who would be willing to do in the trials. Why? Because the people who would be conducting those trials would look just like them. So really get involved with community health centers and federally, federally qualified health centers, FQHCs, and then use them as study spots. Okay, And there are companies out there that actually are helping FQHCs become clinical trial locations. And that hasn't happened before. So that's the first thing that I would say to do, um, because one of the biggest barriers to trust in healthcare, uh, in the healthcare system among African-Americans, again, is we've been experimented on before. Who can we trust? 
well, you know what? We're far more likely to trust people who look like us. And so that is now one of the trends that we're seeing. And it's in its earliest stages, but it's starting to work. Um, in the number of trials uh, that I've seen that my uh, father's wife has um, shared with me, they've been able to enroll very quickly a number of African-Americans uh, in, in clinical studies. So that's my suggestion, because I know that there at least is some movement to using FQHCs as um, study centers. Now, there's a lot you have to do. You have to set up a, um, you know, a research group within that, you know, within that space. You actually have to have access to the patients. You have to actually have the, the, you know, the, all of the study protocols and the clinical. Um, it, you have to have all of the uh, necessary equipment or any kind of environmental things that you need to have for the, that trial protocol. All those things have to be in place. Um, and there are some companies that are emerging that are trying to act, uh, to kind of be that advocate uh, for those companies or for those FQHCs to make sure that they're, uh, they meet all of the study guidelines in terms of their ability to deliver care. Most of the time, it's not that hard, but you have to kind of go by the trial protocols. But that is the, the first thing that I would say to do, uh, which is get federally qualified health centers as your study sites. Uh, okay, Doug has a question here. Did I lose the chat here? Hold on a quick second. He did. Pull that back up. Um, has AARP done anything with regard to policy or outreach with the results of the caregiving expenditure study? Um, this study is brand new. Okay, I mean, this is brand, brand new. In terms of what they've done in the past, because they've had some flavor of this study over the last few years, over that last 10 years, I think they did one about four years before. Um, and it's it's something that um, I know they have a part. Thank you, Deborah. Um, and one of the things that AARP wants to do is get more resources for family caregivers, okay? They're trying to make it so that the access to the services is easier, which means less expensive for all of these different types, especially, you know, through by ethnicity. This is the first time where they've broken it down um, by ethnicity. And so they're seeing some of the same things that I broke down here. I got a little deeper than their analysis because I had some other data um, that I was able to augment this, um, the level of depth in terms of what um, those costs are. But I know that they're trying to get more access to people, especially now um, their new, you know, their new initiatives around health equity are there to do that for people of color. So that's what it is to actually use their, um, you know, their strength, their prowess, their reputation to drive more access to their members and especially their members of color um, to more access to services, to reduce the prices and costs, but to also get more access. So those are things that I know they're doing, they're starting to formalize those programs now. Caesar, I see you got a question here. Caesar asks, how open are large healthcare providers and hospital systems to utilizing your knowledge base? Um, others focused on this issue to consult with them um, to close this racial and cultural gap. The implications for healthcare costs and outcomes seems considerable. That is correct. I can tell you there is high resistance. Right now, we're in the stage of where all of these different healthcare organizations are trying to assess their role, if you will, how much are they contributing to health disparities? So the actions they're taking right now are all in, let's build a team, a task force to study. 
You go with them to solutions and they start backpedaling. Why? One, it seems like it's an admission of guilt. Two, they want to seem like they're the ones who are solving the problems, not necessarily bringing somebody else in to solve the problem, especially when you're looking at a, an end of one solution, an individual patient solution. Um, so the, they're, they're at the point where they have acknowledged that this kind of inequality exists, but they're very, very slow to say, let's go ahead and change what we're doing. Because frankly, it works for them. They're getting more money. Okay. So it is a really interesting thing to um, work with the healthcare enterprise on this. Now, the government is a little different. They're actually trying to put pressure. Um, the government services programs for Medicare and Medicaid are trying to put pressure on the private healthcare system um, to, to drive down these costs, to reduce these health disparities. That's happening, but that takes time. The reason why I'm offering this online course is to allow consumers to take control of their own healthcare, to advocate for themselves, and to do for themselves what it will take years, if not a decade or more, for the healthcare system to do for them. And that is actually my purpose here. And that is to create a scaled solution that allows for people of color to advocate for themselves and get ahead of those healthcare decision-making so they can help themselves instead of once again having to count on the healthcare industry to do it for them. You know, I, I, I've said this before and it's, you know, it's controversial, but I find it to be very true is that you cannot think that in some respects, the white coat is not that dissimilar from the white hood. Okay. The healthcare system is not built for people of color to get strong outcomes. It's an institution in this country, just like any other. It is not that dissimilar to the criminal justice system and police. There are disparities in the way that sentences are given. I mean, Cesar, you know this. And so what I am trying to do is say, what can we do to take our own control? What can we do to impact ourselves, our families? Because we cannot wait for somebody to give it to us. So that's the unfortunate reality we're in now is that there's the, the enterprise. You'll, oh, so I'll answer the other question part of this, which is, there are companies that are coming out, healthcare companies, insurance companies, that are focusing specifically on race. There's a company out of Chicago called Zing Health, started by two black doctors. Their entire goal is to build out a Medicare Advantage program for black seniors to get care and access to services. That's all they're doing. There's another company here in Southern California called Clever Care, which is doing the same for Asians. Okay. But both Blacks and Asians have a diaspora. There are many different types. They're not homogenous. However, the actual disparities are, okay? So if you can address the needs by providing more access to care, you should be able to close that gap. So on the enterprise side, that's what I'm seeing happen. But remember, um, it's, it's new. I think Clever Care is 1,500 patients, 2,000 maybe. Zing has 1,500 patients. I know that for a fact. So 
that's not at scale. Like I can get 1,500 patients to have on my own app and do just as much, if not more, than these large companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's, again, the issue. We have to do this for ourselves. So that was a thorough answer, but I want to make sure I covered all those bases. Any other thoughts, questions? Okay, well, great. I very much appreciate you all coming. Again, if you know anybody who can benefit from this online course, or if you can, please contact me separately from this. I'm more than happy to share more about the course, what we do, and how it can impact your health and that of your family members. So everybody take care, and we will certainly, certainly be in touch in the future. Thanks for coming. And that's it. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the Treat Us Right podcast. If you are in a challenging healthcare situation with yourself or your family, contact us. We can help at podcast at care3.co. Take care.